Coming up next on Inside Golf Podcast, some live thoughts. Just fucking kidding. We're going to talk about the birthplace of golf and the 150th Open Championship. Probably the most excited I've been for a major in my lifetime as a fan. But first, we are, as always, presented by RickRunGoods.com. All the stats, tools, and information that I will be referencing this week, you can find over at RickRunGood.com. So I say this every single major championship, but even if the data stuff and uh, all the extra writing stuff that I do isn't your thing, I would highly, highly recommend you check it out for major weeks because you can get a week-long pass for $7 with coupon code Andy, and you basically get the entire cheat sheet, all the access to the data and the tools, plus my in-depth breakdown of St. Andrews, which will come out on Monday morning, a full deep dive into ownership and all of my DraftKings final thoughts on Wednesday. And the Slack channel is the best place to reach me for questions on anything throughout the week uh, is in that Slack channel. Can't say I have the ability to go through as many DMs as I would like, but that Rick Run Good Slack channel, I am checking far more frequently. That is by far the best place to reach me this week. So sign up today, rickrungood.com. We would love to have you as part of the community, even if it's just for a week. All right, what else? Final major championship of the year. So honestly, probably my last big podcast uh, of the year in terms of the traffic, at least, that it accrues. There's obviously going to be some fun off-season stuff that I have planned, but I'm going to Ireland next month and then band in the month after that, and then we get into the fall swing stuff, which, you know, when you're going head-to-head against football, it's generally a losing battle. Um, so if you do have for this podcast and all the podcasts that I put out this week, um, if you do have 30 seconds to share this podcast on Twitter, leave a five-star review on Apple podcasts, um, which is a major week. So I'll be doing that again and you'll be entered into a draw to win $200, just like every other major championship week. If you leave a review on Apple podcasts, um, so I, you know, I'm definitely not a big smash the like button guy or here's all my raffles and draws and that stuff just isn't really for me i think it's a pretty tough hang when that's the whole ethos of what it feels like you're doing um and i'm honestly really grateful that i have uh, a really engaged and loyal group of listeners that i don't really need to do stuff like that uh too often but i can't emphasize enough how much these four weeks uh, in the year matter um, to me in helping the podcast. And I've really realized that this year more so than ever. So if you have the ability to take 30 seconds and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, leave your Twitter handle or email address in the review as well. And next week, I'll pick somebody and PayPal them $200. US Open was Mike in Milwaukee. He can vouch for that one. Um, so I always appreciate the extra support on major weeks. That's why I only talk about this stuff and push the reviews and the Twitter sharing four times a year. Cause I know it's cringy, but in full earnestness, um, it really helps me out far more than, you know, even just the simple act of leaving a review on Apple podcast goes a very long way for me. Um, so thank you.
What else? I'm recording this Saturday evening. Been up since 5 a.m. this morning. Um, I'm still feel I'm feeling pretty energized though. I've just been excited to talk about the old course. Pretty much all year. I had a great round of golf this morning at Beth Page Red uh, with Kirshner and Saul Goodman, uh, who's a fantastic guy, by the way. Just a great hang and a good golfer too. We had a we had a good match today. Came down to the very last hole and. Uh, we're going to run it back in a couple of days on Wednesday, actually. Um, pretty provocative things going on right now from a, uh, from a ball striking standpoint for me. I'll be honest. I worked on my game all spring. For the first time in about seven years um, since I was actually good when I was a teenager, I had somebody look at my swing. Um, and I changed up a few things, got rid of a couple bad habits that I had picked up. And I just practiced. I didn't play at all, all through February through June. I barely played at all. I just committed and said, nope, you're going to go to the range. You're going to grind. And then when this summer comes, when you go to New York, that's that's when you're going to do all your playing. And uh, it's really all about peaking for these upcoming trips I have coming up in September and October. And I got to say, we're percolating. It's coming around. 15 of 18 greens on Wednesday with Steve and CP. 14 of 18 greens today on Beth Page Red, which is a hard course in my opinion. Um, we just got to figure out the putter. 38 putts both rounds, which is why I'm still shooting 76 with, uh, with even such artisanal iron play. Farm to table, as my good friend Chris Powers, who's not listening, would say. So we're feeling good. Uh, if you're in New York for the area for the next... I don't know, six to eight weeks or so, reach out. I'd love to play. Um, but now let's talk about the old course. Um, actually, you know what? One last thing. I have not watched one second of the Scottish Open. I do not like the Renaissance Club. It's not for me. Um, I'm just out on that place. But for all the people tweeting about Xander and in my DMs about Xander, it's like, all right, you know what? I get it. You want to bet Xander next week? Go ahead. You want to say the floodgates are open? Go ahead. But just remember, this guy was a fucking punchline to you two weeks ago. I specifically remember talking about this with Kirshner on the Traveler Show two weeks ago about how there was just this terrible stigma around betting Xander. And if you were ever betting Xander, you had to be really quiet about it. I've talked about this with Jeff a bunch of times too. And even though I really don't bet Xander that much, and I'm actually up money betting on Xander this year, everyone wants to shit on your Xander bets and call this guy a loser. And look at this loser. Why is he 20 to one? Can't win real tournaments. Needs no cut events. He's going to live because he sucks and can't compete. I just sat there the whole time and said, all right, you know what? You want to say that? Great. <laughs> but he's 28 years old and he works his fucking ass off and he's a really good player. And Phil and DJ started winning majors in their early to mid thirties. And the dude's 28 and he finishes top 20 in a major championship pretty much every fucking time he tees it up dating back to when he was 22. So maybe just let it play out. And now he's the most popular bet at the Open. I mean, people are already acting like he already won the Scottish. I haven't watched any of this tournament, so maybe he does look 
as good, I guess, as people are saying, but I don't know. Isn't Spieth like three strokes back? You want to do a 180 and bet Xander at the open? Great. I'm sure that it's really all that easy. And yeah, I get it. Does he fit St. Andrews well? Yes. Does he have a very similar statistical profile to Scotty Scheffler right before Scotty Scheffler won the Masters? Yes. But the dude was fucking incompetent, I was told, at winning golfing golf tournaments for three fucking years. And now, suddenly, he's just going to win four times in seven starts, including the biggest fucking tournament of the decade. Okay. I hope you're right. Nothing will make me happier. But as someone who has stood behind this guy for as long as I've been doing this, very interesting to see how quickly the temperature of the room has changed on this guy. There have been a lot of things said about Xander Shoffley that I've just took just gut punch after gut punch on this guy pretty recently too. Uh, and now it's like, oh, we changed our mind. Okay. He's the guy at the open now. All right. Well, that's certainly fine with me. Um, I hope he wins next week too. Uh, all right. Sorry for the detour. 150th Open Championship is returning to the home of golf, St. Andrews. Uh, it has hosted the Open Championship a record 29 times. Most recently, 2015, won by Zach Johnson in a playoff over Mark Leishman and Louis Ustazen. 2010, Louis Ustazen won at 16 under by seven strokes over Lee Westwood. 2005, Tiger Woods, minus 14 over Colin Montgomery. He won by five. Uh, 2000, Tiger won at minus 19 again over Thomas Bjorn and Ernie Els by eight strokes. 1995, John Daly at minus six in a playoff over Constantino Roca. That was a year that we got a little more wins. 1990, Nick Faldo, um, 18 under over Mark McNulty and Payne Stewart, who shot 13 under. So he won by five. And then 1984. Shout out Seve Ballesteros. Um, my friend Ryan was there in person on that one, and uh, he said it was it was quite the performance by old Seve. He won at 12 under over Bernard Langer and Tom Watson. So, as you can see, outside of the daily year, it's been 12 under, 18 under, 19 under, 14 under, 16 under, 15 under. Now, some of these wins, some of these wins have already like the Ustazen year, seven strokes. The Woods year, eight strokes. Um, the Faldo year, five strokes. So a lot of the times, there's one guy that's breaking away and shooting 15, 16, 17 under. And, you know, the second place guy is finishing at like nine under, 10 under, 11 under, 13 under, 10 under. Um, but we'll talk about the... Um, the prevailing narrative that I think uh, has already picked up a lot of steam this week about how easy this course is going to play. But I want to run through some of the basics of St. Andrews first. It was, I guess, unofficially designed by old Tom Morris in 1895. It's a par 72. For this open, it is playing 7,313 yards. Uh, water somewhat comes into play on two holes. The fairways are fescue and bent grass. The rough is bent grass with, um, according to my friend Steve, a crested dog's tail, which I've never heard before. Um, 
but I'm excited to uh, see how players navigate that one. The greens are 50% fescue. Um, they've got some bent grass and poa in there, but they're mainly fescue based. Um, slower greens, as I'm sure you've heard many times this week. So, what can I say about St. Andrews that you haven't already heard? What is the character of St. Andrews? Well, we all know it has super wide fairways. It's got very undulating large greens. Seven of the greens are shared, actually. Some of the fairways are shared. Um, and if I had to boil it down personally, I would say that the golf course is really about placement. Um, so just because it's extremely wide off the tee, uh, that doesn't mean that you can just bomb away aimlessly. And if you've played a lot of golf in Scotland or even played a lot of golf on CB McDonald courses or Seth Rayner courses, um, I think you're aware that wide fairways don't necessarily mean bomb and gouge, bomb away aimlessly. You've got to hit the ball in the right spots and you're going to have a lot of shots that aren't really driving range shots, right? You're going to have a lot of awkward 60-yard wedge shots, a lot of 100-foot putts. Uh, it's a lot about scrambling and lag putting and getting up and down and using creativity from weird spots and distances. So a couple quotes that stood out to me. Danny Willett talks about how he believes it suits a fader of the ball, golf ball. I can see that going through the holes. Um, the winners haven't all been always faders of the ball. There's been some drawers of the ball that have had a ton of success here. But I thought that was interesting to me that he talks about how you kind of want to start it in the middle and, and it, it helps to have some fade spin on your ball around here. Um, and then Graham McDowell talked about something that I thought was interesting about the bunkers how a lot of the bunkers are no longer in play um, and how a lot of the power that the guys have these days, um, they are not, uh, the bunkers are not coming into play the way that they would um, even five years ago, even seven years ago when they had the last open. Um, so that's something to monitor that I'll, again, I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but the greens really are its protection. Um, and unfortunately a lot of it obviously, obviously is going down, going to come down to the wind, but St. Andrews is a course that gives you a lot, a lot, a lot of options, right? And obviously I'm sure you can see that by the list of guys that have won here including, you know, a Zach Johnson. Um, but there are roadmaps to success at St. Andrews where you're hitting driver 14 times, 15 times out there. Um, and there are other roadmaps too that I, I'm going to talk about too that I think will probably might be slept on a little bit because I'm already, I'm already seeing a lot of the, the bomb and gouge driving distance stuff. Um, but I want to run through some of the trends that um, I always think are great uh, for these majors. I have been paying more attention to them recently. I'm not a big trends guy, but I think this year, um, guys like Bamford and, and Tyndall had do such a great job of 
uh, curating those uh, all these things that are going on. So I wanted to highlight a couple of them, a couple, just a couple of the ones that stood out to me personally. So I think Morikawa is going to throw a lot of people off the set this week because what he did last year was really a massive, massive outlier in terms of not having any open championship or links for um, nine of the last 10 winners outside of Morikawa had a prior top 10 at an, at the open, at least once prior to winning across the past 10 winners, each had appeared in 10 opens on average prior to winning. So Morikawa on debut and Spieth with four were the huge outliers. Um, and with Spieth and Morikawa, I think you could easily make the argument that those guys are generational talents. And on occasion, a generational talent is going to buck a trend. And like all major championships, it's pretty damn hard for a non-elite player to win. Uh, nine of the last 10 Open Championship winners have ranked top 40 in the official world golf rankings. Uh, but I will say that the Open Championship has actually lended itself more so to surprise winners. So in 2011... Darren Clark was ranked 111th in the world. In 2010, Louis was a pretty long shot. I mean, he was ranked 54th, but he was pretty unproven at that stage of his career. I believe he was over 200 to 1. Stuart Sink in 2009 was a relative long shot. No one saw that one coming, really. Todd Hamilton in 2004 was a long shot. Ben Curtis in 2003 was a huge long shot. Um, so I do think, and a lot of those did happen. It, the open went through this stretch where it was really weird outside of the tiger years from, you know, 2003 to 2015. So it was basically either like tiger or Phil winning or somebody that you didn't really expect. And then it's kind of, you know, the last couple of years, I guess like your Shane Lowry's and, and, and Molinari's aren't elite, elite players, top 10 players at the time. Um, so I do think that you can be maybe a little more liberal with some of your decision making down the board this week, especially because, you know, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit later too. It's always in play that a weather draw is going to, you know, take out half the field and suddenly it becomes a much easier tournament to win. Uh, but the major form thing remains something that I think is always something to monitor. I mean, we talked about this uh, at all of the first three majors. Eight of the past 10 winners have posted a top 20 in one of their previous two majors. Every single one of the past 10 winners also posted a win or a runner-up in a major. So that would be bad news for a lot of guys. Hovland, Burns, Cam Young, Neiman, Cantlay Contingent, all those guys um, have not posted a win or a runner-up in a major. Uh, and then recent form, we talked about this a lot at majors recently as well, and how it just sort of feels now, um, and I'm talking about winning this golf tournament. I think it's a little bit different in the way that I approach DraftKings this week. It just feels like it's becoming harder and harder to win one of these tournaments if you aren't in peak, peak form with how deep the talent pool is. And I think that's why you've started to see a trend of more guys playing the week before majors. Um, but eight of the last 10 open championships has champions had posted a top 10 in at least one of their three previous starts. 
the last five winners actually had a top two in one of their last three starts. So outside of the weird Scottish Open performance from Colin, he was playing great last year. Fourth at the U.S. Open, second at Memorial, eighth at the PGA Championship, seventh at Heritage. Those were his five starts before that. Lowry, the year that he won, he wasn't exactly coming out of left field either. Third at the Heritage, eighth at the PGA Championship, second at the Canadian Open. Molinari, he had just won on the DP World Tour, and he had just won the Quicken Loans earlier this season too by like eight strokes. Even Zach Johnson was coming off a T2 at the John Deere and a six at the Travelers right before that. He was having a great season. Spieth had just won the Travelers right before winning the Open. Phil won the week before. He almost won the U.S. Open that year. He won in Phoenix. Phil was having an incredible season. Rory was playing great. Stenson had just won. The list goes on. I'm not going to run through all of them. But I thought this one was really fascinating um, from my good friend Steve Bamper. 15 of the last 21 Open champions. That's 71% had already won a tournament this season. So... That would maybe be my holdup with, uh, you know, a Brooks, a DJ, a Louie, a Bryson. Some of these guys were, were a little bit more questionable about their form, and they haven't won this year. There just isn't a whole lot of precedent of showing up and winning a major when you haven't been playing peak, peak golf this season. Now, all the guys that I just mentioned, I'm still incredibly interested in all of them for DraftKings purposes. I'm talking about winning the tournament here. And then last one, eight of the last 10 winners played the week before. That's another one that we've talked about before the last couple of majors. And we've seen this trend increase significantly again over the past couple of years where more good players are starting to play the week before majors far more often culminating this past week in the Scottish Open, having one of the absolute best non-major fields in recent memory. So I guess the one that you would worry about there is Rory, but you know, I guess maybe if you're trying to make DraftKings decisions farther down the board, um, playing the week before a major, particularly playing well, playing well in your last start, hitting the ball well in your last start, to me, really matters, um, or it has at least shown more recently that it really matters. So, you know, you can call the Scottish or whatever tune-up or scrimmage, but history has really shown us that you really want to be hitting the ball well coming in and playing in-form golf. So um, I'm recording this on Saturday evening, but how these guys end up doing at the Scottish tomorrow and kind of looking at the full spectrum of their stats is something that really matters to me and something I'm going to look at pretty closely. Um, and then the weather, uh, before we get into some of the stats that I'm, that I'm going to look at, obviously I cannot illustrate how much the weather is going to determine how hard this course is going to play. The dichotomy between how truly easy I believe St. Andrews will be versus how hard it will be with high winds is very stark, maybe more stark than any other course that I could remember. Um, I mean, there's no better example of this than Rory shooting 
an opening round 63 in calm conditions in 2010, and then he shot an 80 in round two in super windy conditions. So like any British Open, it's going to be all about the wins. Last year with the British, many people, including myself, handicapped that course with the assumption that we were going to get some win. Obviously, we didn't get that win, and the course played way differently than what we thought that it was going to be. So, you know, it's kind of a fool's errand to predict right now as I sit here recording this on Saturday night because we just don't know about the wins. But as I see it now, it doesn't look like there's going to be a lot. There looks like there'll be some wins, but it doesn't look carnage fueled. Um, And so I want to talk a little bit about how I think this course might play if that weather holds and the wind doesn't blow. Um, And, you know, when they play the Dunhill lengths, you know, I mean, players are almost shooting 59. um, But they're going to set up the pins a lot differently. They give a lot of of easy pins at the Dunhill lengths, and it's not going to be playing as firm and fast as it will this week. Um, But the RNA is aware of this. Um, I hope people realize that, right? Like Martin Slumbers, who is, when I say aware of this, I'm talking about um, the difficulty that a course like St. Andrews has in protecting par and standing up to modern technology. Martin Slumbers, who's the CEO, has talked about this before, and he's talked about this almost, he started talking about this almost a decade ago. Um, But with a course like St. Andrews, there's really not much you can do after a certain point. Um, like the 17th tee is now in like a random field to the right of the 16th fairway. There are some tees, um, that they're using now that are over a thousand yards away from the previous green. And even with those changes, it hasn't made the course a whole lot harder. Um, and it's not even really a course worth tricking up anymore. Um, because after a certain point, it's not St. Andrews anymore. And the RNA understands this. Um, none of this is breaking news, by the way. Like People have been talking about this with St. Andrews for years. In fact, there's a really good Golf Digest piece on this back in 2018 that talks about, I mean, all literally all the way back in 2018, that talks about this very issue and how easy the course played in 2015. Now, fast forward seven years later, just in those seven years, from 2015 to 2022, the average driving distance on tour has increased by eight yards. Now, eight yards, that doesn't sound like a lot, um, but it is a lot. Over a lot of players, everyone getting eight yards longer on average, that's a lot. Um, It is a different game now than it was even back in 2015. Um, And... Listen, I, I want to talk about how I think this is swing swung a little bit too far in the other direction, how the pendulum swung a little bit too far. But when I talked about Southern Hills and the Country Club, I talked about the renovations that Gil Hans made, and I felt pretty confidently that those courses would play to the integrity of the architecture, that you would not be able to do what Bryson did at Winged Foot um, and take a route to win that tournament that none of the members uh, or the architects thought were possible. And I I said this year, I thought Gil Hans did a really good job with both those courses. 
And I think that those courses are going to play very, very true to the way the architect intended. Now, uh, can I say that definitively about the old course? No, I cannot. I cannot say that definitively the way that I could about Southern Hills or the Country Club. But like I said, I do think the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in the other direction with this stuff. Um, from everything that I have heard, uh, we'll talk to Kobe more about this when he comes on the pod on Tuesday, but the course is playing pretty firm and fast. They have this course running pretty damn hot. Um, and like I said, it's not like the RNA is just sitting here saying, hey, we're we're going to let all these guys shoot 25 under here. Like they're aware of this and the course is going to be fiery. And I do not think that it is going to be 25 under. I'm not like looking at strokes gain, total easy scoring conditions. I'm not looking at birdies or better gained. I'm not having arguments with people about, Oh, can this guy get to 22 under? Has he won tournaments before at 22 under? Um, I think that there will be enough wind and enough uh, major championship pressure, and the course will be firm enough that I think saying somebody's going to come out here and shoot 25 under par is a stretch to me. I think it's a fun thing to talk about and think about because it speaks to a much larger potential problem that the game that the game has in the upcoming years with some of these courses. And I think this year at St. Andrews will certainly be a pretty big litmus test for that. But again, I think the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in the other direction with St. Andrews being the easiest course on the planet. I think 15 to 18 under sounds about right to me. Um, again, that can change in the wind. I could definitely see a guy shooting 20 under par and winning by four, five, six, seven strokes. Um, but I'm not sure that I view the course that way, um, that it is, you know, it is going to be completely, completely destroyed um, by these guys. I do think that there are going to be some things that guys are going to be able to do to this course um, that are going to be really fun to watch. And um, having this, this greens are going to be driven right? There's going to be stuff like that. And there will certainly be a lot of birdies. Um, but I do not believe that, uh, we're going to see something in the 20 to 25 under ballpark. Let's talk a little bit about St. Andrews off the tee, um, and dive into some of the stats. So again, I've talked about how St. Andrews has some of the widest fairways that you're going to find anywhere. I still think that there's a ton of strategy off the tee because, you want to attack the hole from the correct angle. But still, I talked about how Southern Hills and the Country Club, they do do a decent job, particularly the Country Club on a lot of holes, taking driver out of your hands. You can hit driver on every hole at St. Andrews at you, if you want to. That is a viable strategy. I wouldn't recommend it as the strategy on every hole. I do think that there are going to be certain holes where it's actually not going to be advantageous to hit driver. And because of how firm the fairways are going to be, um, some of the longer guys it will take driver out of their hands because they'll run out of some room on some holes, depending on how firm the fairways are. Um, but they are very wide 
right? And every single one of the past four champions hit over 73% of their fairways, which is a lot. Zach Johnson and Louis Ustazen both hit 86% of their fairways. Um, And with how long these players hit it these days, there is a chance that we get six drivable par fours. Um, So the thing that you're going to hear people talk continuously about this week is how you just hit driver everywhere and it's a completely bomb and gouge course. Again, I would just bring attention to the... I'm not disagreeing with that necessarily, but I would just bring attention to the fact that that is far from the only way to have success around St. Andrews. Just look at Zach Johnson. So, yes, I absolutely think that there's going to be a couple guys that are going to take a really aggressive strategy this week and are going to have a leg up if they bomb it off the tee um, and if they're hitting their driver in the right spots and on the correct sides of the fairways. Do not get me wrong. Distance helps. I'm certainly looking at it. Um, But you can make up for a lack of distance at St. Andrews very, very easily if you are awesome inside 125 yards. I want to make that very, very clear. Distance can be deemed completely irrelevant quickly if you can make up for it by being absolutely elite inside 125 yards. So as far as the actual layout with St. Andrews is concerned, It's incredibly unique in the sense that it only has two par fives and two par threes and 14 par fours. And of those 14 par fours, only five of them are over 450 yards. So it's not a long golf course at all. There are nearly double the amount of par fours under 400 yards that there are the amount of par fours over 450 yards. So I went through hole by hole and I tried to figure out, okay, where are these guys going to be hitting their approach shots from. Uh, And it's a lot harder because the wind plays such a huge role here. But bare minimum, I think there are going to be 10-ish approach shots, potentially more under 125 yards. Now, there are a lot of decisions that you can make off the tee at a course like St. Andrews. So this is going to vary from player to player. Um But I feel pretty comfortable saying that if you are going to look at proximity buckets, which are already a somewhat flawed stat, I think you probably want to be honing in on players that over a large sample size um, are really good with those awkward wedge distances, a la 50 to 125 yards. And even then, some of those 50-yard shots, like you're going to see guys putt those too. Um, But for me, the biggest... The biggest thing that stood out that I'm not sure people are going to talk about a ton is that how few legitimate middle to long iron shots you would actually have to hit on this course. Obviously, iron play is huge every week, but I do think if there's any course where being a really good uh, mid to long iron player, you're just not going to have to use you're not going to have to have that skill as much on a course like St. Andrews. Um, Obviously this is a course where there's only two par threes. So there's only two stock iron shots and you have a ton of potentially drivable par fours and, you know, over half the approach shots on this course, you could play these either weird little punch wedges. And um, to me, there's like very few stock, driving range, middle to long iron approach shots at St. Andrews. Um, So to me, I'm a lot lower than I usually am on pure approach metrics. Um, 
like this is something I was I was thinking about today when I was playing golf with Kirshner and Saul about a guy like Zalatoris, um, where I think Zalatoris has such a big advantage on a golf course where a mid to long iron is in his hands a lot. And there's a real penalty for not being a good mid to long iron player. John Rahm's the same way, by the way. To me, this course is very different. I think it is about putting yourself in the right spots off the tee, creativity inside 125 yards, scrambling and lack putting. Um, Like that's more how I would characterize St. Andrews. And, you know, the old course has, I think probably the best thing about St. Andrews is the bunkers. The old course has 112 bunkers and many of them are very deep. The thing that I like so much about Lynx Golf and golf in Ireland and golf in the UK, and there's a there's some great courses in the US that do this too. Um, but for more pro golfers, bunkers are not really hazards anymore. That is not the case at a course like St. Andrews. The bunkers here are actually hazards. And you have to be really conscientious as a player about that. Um, like driving it in a bunker is a penalty. Hitting it in certain bunkers around the green is a penalty. You know, certain pot bunkers, you can just trickle in and you're dead. Whereas in America, you'll hear all the time, good players are talking to their balls and sometimes they're saying, get in the bunker, which is hilarious to me because that's not how golf was intended to be played. Bunkers are supposed to be hazards. Um, And golf in Scotland has really held true to that, whereas American golf has veered away from it. Um, Doak was talking about this too, um, about where we're so focused in America about making bunkers, these visual objects where in Scotland, they're actually hazards. Um, they're these like tiny little things. They're not in visual scale, usually from the T, but they are when you actually get there. Um, and a lot of that has to do with like the contours around them where, you know, they may look small in size, but they actually play a lot longer because of the surrounding contours. Um, putting, so Tiger has talked about lag putting as one of the biggest keys to success here. And I talked about this last week with the slower greens. I think you want to try and identify players who are really good lag putters and raise their baseline putting on slower greens. And you're going to have a lot of putts at St. Andrews. You're going to have a long, a lot of long putts at St. Andrews because it's going to be an extremely high greens and regulation percentage. And even if you don't hit the green, you're still going to have the option to putt from off the green as well in many cases. So I talked about this a little bit last week at the Scottish, but identifying really good lag putters and guys who improve their baseline on slower greens is big for me. And I really like what Dave Tindall, podcast guest tomorrow, Dave Tindall, highlighted about scrambling. Um, and how that is a key stat here. Seven of the last eight open winners have ranked in the top seven in scrambling. Last time we went to St. Andrews, the three best scramblers on the week finished fourth, first, and second. Um, 2010, three of the top five finished in the top six, and Tiger was always in the top 10 in scrambling in both 2005 and 2000. And, 2000. Um, and this is something that makes sense in theory as well too, right? You're going to have a lot of can you get up and down from 60 yards situations at St. Andrews? And the reason I like scrambling even more than looking at around the green play is because 
you know, at St. Andrews, you can chip it, you can putt it from 200 feet sometimes. Like, you just have to find a way to get the ball in the hole. Um, and this is a stat that can hopefully help me identify players that are just the best at finding a way to get up and down and get the ball in the hole. It's very, very difficult to measure, um, even at a course like Brookline, like the types of shots that you're going to have to hit around the green at Brookline are so, so, so different from the types of shots that you're going to have to hit here. Uh, and then in terms of comp courses, um, there's definitely Augusta an Augusta thing. You're going to hear about that a lot. Nine of the last 10 winners at St. Andrews previously posted a top three in the Masters. Shout out Dave Tyndall again for that one. That's a big one. Kirshner loves that one. I've heard about that one all week. Well, does he have a top three in the Masters? Um, so that's a good one. I think that it makes sense, right? At a very basic level, let's look at why Zach Johnson was able to have success at both places. Well, St. Andrews are very St. Andrews and Augusta are very similar in the sense that even if you don't have distance, if you are really good inside 125 yards, you can have a lot of success. Zach Johnson famously won the Masters laying up on every single par five. You're going to have a lot of awkward wedge shots and distances at St. Andrews too. And I was watching the final round in 2015, and that was how DJ, ZJ won. 80 yards in, up and down for birdie. 30 yards in, up and down for birdie. 50 yards in, up and down for birdie. And both courses allow you to be creative with those shots too. You can bring them in low. You can hit these little sawed-off wedge shots. And that's what ZJ was so incredibly good at. Now, there are a lot of obvious differences too. St. Andrews has really slow greens. Augusta has some of the fastest greens on tour. Big emphasis on par 5 scoring at Augusta. That's not the case at St. Andrews. But in terms of giant fairways, options off the tee, Massive undulating greens, uneven lies, lag putting. I get it. And that is why I also like, I think this one's really good. Um, this would be the only other course in the United States, and it's not even really in the mainland United States, that I think you could actually compare to St. Andrews. And this one has been compared to Augusta before, but Kapalua. Let's think about Kapalua for a second, right? Massive fairways undulating big greens. Kapalua actually has really slow greens, just like St. Andrews. A lot of awkward wedge distances at Kapalua. And you look at the players that have been really good at both Augusta and Kapalua, and there's this massive overlap. DJ, Rom, Spieth, Cameron Smith, Sander, Adam Scott, even some of the non-superstars, Sung JM, Patrick Reed, like these guys are just consistently popping up at both places. So I think that there is some merit at looking at a place like Kapalua too, in terms of the types of shots that you're going to be faced with at both places and kind of the options off the tee and the massive greens and the lag putting. And then obviously, if you have played St. Andrews before in the 2004, 2010, or 2015 Open, that means something to me. I mean, back to the Augusta thing. Augusta is the most, the number one most predictive course in terms of course history. Augusta is number one. It's why you see Fred Couples finish top 20 there at 50 years old. It's why there's still hope in many of our hearts that Tiger could still steal another Masters, you know, 
or Jack wins at 46. Because at a course like Augusta, and St. Andrews is exactly the same way, they are in the top, top, top 1% of nuance, right? I heard Jeff Shackelford talk about, he thinks St. Andrews is the greatest strategic golf course of all time. That is a big statement from a dude that has played golf everywhere in the world at every great course. And he would say, he says St. Andrews is the number one most strategic golf course he's ever played. And it never plays the same uh, two days in a row, right? You could play it countless times. And on your 25th time playing St. Andrews, you'd learn something new, right? And so what do I mean when I say nuance? Well, these are courses that highly, highly reward course knowledge over anything else. So one thing Tom Doak talked about before is how St. Andrews is a very complicated golf course in the sense that the hazards aren't really, I thought this was super interesting. The hazards aren't really in obvious spots and a lot of them that you can't even see off the tee, which is why I've been pushing back just a little bit on the let's bomb away aimlessly here. So, you get up there and it's like, oh, I would have played this hole differently if I knew that was there. And you hear all these people talk about how, you know, sometimes you don't understand the golf course, St. Andrews, or get it until your second, third, fourth, fifth time playing it. A lot of people I've heard, a lot of stories I've heard about St. Andrews is like people were underwhelmed the first time and then the second and third time, they're like, oh, I get it. Um, this is magical. And St. Andrews is not a track man golf course. It's not a driving range golf course. The types of shots that you're going to have to hit at St. Andrews require a lot of creativity, a lot of vision. And I think that's why Cam Smith or Jordan Spieth, you know, both love the Masters and are both likely going to be very popular bets this week as well. So... You know, doing a quick scan over the leaderboards the last few times we've been to St. Andrews, a lot of live guys are probably going to be pretty happy to be coming back here. Louis is the obvious course history one. 2010, he won, lost in a playoff in 2015. Well, I, I'd say Tiger's the most obvious course history one, and then we get into Louis. Um, Westwood finished second in 2010, made the cut in 2015. Paul Casey finished third in 2010, made the cut in 2015. Fowler finished top 30 both years. Adam Scott finished top 30 both years. Sergio finished top 15 both years. And DJ Schwartzel, I swear I'm not just naming live guys. Kucher, Kevin Na, Jason Day, Mark Leishman, Zach Johnson all made the cut in 2010 and 2015. Zach Johnson won in 2015. Leishman lost in a playoff in 2015, Jason Day finished fourth that year. And uh, that was when he was at his absolute peak. I miss good Jason Day. Um, but there are a couple guys that have some pretty good experience here. So I threw all this stuff together and here's how it spit out for me. Number one, Justin Thomas. Number two, Xander Shoffley. Number three, Cam Smith. Number four, Sam Burns. Number five, Rory McIlroy. Number six, Jordan Spieth. Number seven, Matt Fitzpatrick. Number eight, Scotty Scheffler. Number nine, Patrick Cantlay. No real big surprises there for me, right? 
Burns a little higher than I may have thought. I guess Scotty a little bit lower, but even so, not really. Number 10, Tommy Fleetwood. Not a bit. Number 11, Mark Leishman, who I talked about uh, quite a bit when I did a early majors preview in December. Uh, Mark Leishman was my pick. Mark Leishman and Dylan Fratelli were my two picks uh, in December. So they, I'll probably, probably have to put both those guys on the betting card. 12, Shane Lowry. 13, Harold Varner. Take that with a grain of salt. He always... He always is. I think his numbers are a little better than him, actually. Um, but he's always up there. Number fourteen, Sung JM. Fifteen, Rom. One of the lowest I've seen Rom in quite some times. I have. I have some concerns about Grumpy J. Sixteen, Seamus Power. Seventeen, Webb Simpson. Which is interesting to me. Eighteen, Mito Pereira. Nineteen, Max Homa. Twenty, Adam Scott. Which is also interesting to me. So. You know, I have not made uh, any decisions about who I'm going to bet. There are some guys that I like a lot. Um, I'm going to wait as long as possible uh, with some of the win stuff. Um, I have not. I have no bets as of now. Now, I will say this, um, and this has been kind of a joke that I've had with Kirshner for a little bit, but I do genuinely believe that. I I think that Rory McIlroy is going to win this tournament. Now, I have to really gauge the level of confidence that I have in Rory because he's nine to one, and I don't really ever bet guys at nine to one. I've done it a very few times. Um, I did it like at the Zurich Classic with Xander, um, and the other times I've done it, it hasn't really worked out. So. Yes, I think Rory is going to win. How confident I am in that in terms of what I would have to give up to bet Rory to win and all the other guys that I would have to give up on, um, that is what I'm still trying to identify. But it's interesting to me. I thought Rory was going to be the squarest, most talked about you know, bet on the board. And it seems like we're kind of trending in like a Xander Spieth cam direction with that. And I think Rory will still be a major, major talking point, um, you know, outside of the betting community, because in the betting space, he's, his number is really short. Um, but, you know, he still has, uh, I still think he will be picked in a lot of pools and stuff like that. Rory, Rory ain't sneaking up on anyone, but I don't know if he is going to catch the steam that I thought uh, a couple weeks ago when everyone was talking about Rory at St. Andrews. It seems like Xander and Spieth have kind of entered that conversation a little bit. Um, and I think once the tournament week gets going, um, there's going to be a lot of live chatter and there's going to be a lot of uh tiger chatter and phil chatter too but i like rory a lot in DraftKings. i like him at the top more than i like scheffler and rom and jt um i think he was playing a lot of golf i kind of actually like that he took the week off 
and didn't play the Scottish. He looked great for what it's worth at the JP McManus in two days. Um, and I just think the way that he's playing right now, since the Masters, he's gone second, fifth, eighth, 18th, first, fifth, 19th. Hasn't finished outside the top 20 since winning since the Masters with a win in there at the Canadian Open. I'm having a difficult, and he's been, he's at least somewhat contended at both the first two majors. I could see a world where Scheffler struggles this week. I could see a world where Rom struggles this week. It's hard to me. It's hard for me to envision a scenario where I kind of feel this way about Spieth too. It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where Rory is not relevant in this golf tournament. Um, and gun to my head as it stands now, he would be my pick to win. But there are a lot of guys in the 20 to 50 to 60 range that I may just end up saying, you know what? I'm rooting for Rory. Um, I hope this happens, but I don't feel good enough about it to give up a potentially flush betting card with a lot of other great options, right? So that's kind of what I'm working through right now. I will say one thing. The other guy that has my interest the most um, that is at, I think, a very good number. I think I missed the best number, um, and it would, you know, it would take me out of the Rory sweepstakes if I bet this guy. <laughs> um, but I really like Dustin Johnson this week, and I played him at the U.S. Open at three, four percent, and he was fine. Um, you know, the thing with the live guys, because there are a lot of them that I actually really like this week, too. I know Louis seems to be the one that everyone's catching steam. I love DJ and Reed. Um, I really, really like Patrick Reed this week. I'm not sure about to win, um, but I really like Patrick. He's one of my, him and DJ are two of my favorite DraftKings plays. And I think if you've listened to my uh, podcast I put out last week, you absolutely know how I feel about Liv. But I can always take emotion out of this, especially with DraftKings. I think it's imperative to take emotion out of this. And I just think these guys are going to go under-owned. And they went under-owned at the U.S. Open, and I played a lot of them at the U.S. Open, and it didn't really work out for me. But I thought a lot about the U.S. Open, and I thought a lot about, um, because I kind of like Brooks as a DraftKings play too, to be honest with you. Um, and I, I think that now that the dust is settled with these guys, I think the U S open looking back on it, especially for a guy like Brooks and probably like a Taylor Gooch too. Uh, and some of the guys that like just obviously for someone like Phil, right. But I think all the live guys that played in the U S open, I just think that was a tough spot for them. Uh, this is obviously by their own doing. I don't have any sympathy for the spot that they were in uh, compared to some of their peers and the questions that they probably had to face. But I think that um, I think the dust has settled a little bit, and I think that now they're going to be they're they're going to be a little bit more comfortable at this major. I think that 
you know, the shine, don't get me wrong, Liv will still be a massive, massive storyline this week, um, as it always is. But I think that for a lot of those guys, okay, they kind of got it out of the way at the U.S. Open, especially a guy specifically like DJ, who, in theory, is a perfect fit at St. Andrews, in my opinion. He's still plenty long off the tee. Um, he's actually really good inside 125 yards, like over a large sample size. He's really, really good. Um, and the ball striking with him like has still been good. You know, he gained 2.7 off the tee, 3.7 on approach at the U.S. Open, lost 0.5 putting. And he got the wrong side of the draw at the U.S. Open too. Now, he's coming off a of fourth in Live Portland and an eighth in Live London. What does that mean? I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Um, but you combine in the fact that he's been really good at the British Opens. He's won at Kapalua twice, um, great at the Masters. I think Dustin Johnson could win. And I do think one of those live guys is going to contend. I think DJ and Reed would probably be my best bet for it. You know, I will say... I will say about Brooks too. I don't I don't I don't have the confidence in Brooks that I have in in DJ. I'm just having a harder time like Brooks finished 20th in Portland where he shot a final round 76. He barely beat his brother Chase. So for me to use your live performance as a positive <laughs> I think I need you to like be contending. If you are finishing 20th at live behind Martin Keimer, Matt Jones, Tanny Hara, Westwood, C. Juan Kim, Sam Horsfield, Yuki Ina Murray, Justin Harding, Ginny Heuser, Kazuma, all these guys beat Brooks at live. Um, so at a certain point, like I don't think that I could use that as a positive for your case. I probably have to use that as a negative for your case. Whereas, with Reed or DJ, I could say, okay, maybe, you know, top five, top three, that that's maybe something. But what was interesting to me about Brooks is, you know, he gained, he still like gained a ton of strokes off the tee and he just gave it all away short game. And he was another guy, um, that I had earmarked here close to the beginning of the year. I know Brooks was like a very popular pick at a lot of the other majors and I remember talking on the the December preview about how of all the major venues this year I actually like St. Andrews for Brooks the most um so I just wanted to put that out there and the other guy I mean there are a couple other guys I again I really like Leishman um I said that I I've always kind of he finished second here in 2015 I think Adam Scott's going to have a really good week. I really like Adam Scott a lot. Do I think Adam Scott can win? I don't know at this stage of his career, but T14 at the U.S. Open, sneaky T14, gained 4.8 on approach, 3.2 around the green. Um, T27 at St. Andrews in 2010, T34 in 2005. I think he's a good DraftKings play. Um and I also really like Tony Finau, <laughs> who's another guy that I've kind of had circled here for quite some time. Um, and he 
he's playing he's rounding into form right he he 5.6 on approach at the travelers um he even hit the ball still okay at the u.s open when he missed the cut um the off the tee and approach are both kind of trending in the right direction and i think do i actually think tony fanny could win this tournament maybe um i'm not sure he'll how popular he'll be in DraftKings. i think he should be popular um but outside of the miscut at the U.S. Open where he got the wrong side of the draw, he's been really good. Um, and I like I like this setup for him. Again, he's another guy that has been sneaky, like sneaky a lot better with some of those like shorter, awkward wedge shots. Um, so that's kind of how I see see it as of now. Um, I think if, you know, again, if I if I leave the Rory sweepstakes and decide on this. Um, you know, DJ Finau, Leishman, maybe Adam Scott, Patrick Reed, hodgepodge of guys probably have room for, for one guy in, in the twenties is like an anchor. And I'm, as of right now, I, I prefer both Jordan Spieth and Cam Smith to Xander. Um, if those guys are in the twenties, I, I think that both Cam Smith and, and, Jordan Spieth, I would prefer betting them this week than Sander. Um, but again, we got to see where the wind's blowing. I really don't know. That was actually like the most potential picks I've given um, for an early lean segment in quite some time. So that is completely where my head is at right now on on Saturday. I've, I, I haven't really felt the need to... Um, to be quick with a lot of these bets, especially with the weathers. I, I don't think it's really super too smart of a, a futures market to wade into a ton, right? I think there's some guys that have some really good numbers um, on certain players, but I think you you kind of always want to leave some some bullets in the holster for the week of in case certain things develop. I will say the one thing I'm kicking myself for, I had access to a 50 on DJ and I don't anymore and it's gone. And I thought that was an incredible bet and I don't know why I didn't bet it. I was, I had golf stuff go. I was on the golf course and I, then I found out it was gone and I had a lot of stuff going on the last couple of days. Um, but that was a miss by me. Um, all right, that's it though. I don't have anything else on these guys. You're going to have a ton of, uh, opportunities to, uh, hear all my stuff later in the week. I'll be back with the king of trends, Dave Tindall. Uh, we're recording that tomorrow afternoon, by the way. So that might be out a little bit on the earlier side. That should be out on Monday morning. Um, maybe. See what my editor's up to. Maybe maybe Monday afternoon. But that usually comes out Tuesday mornings. Going to try and get that out a little bit earlier. Um, and then the podcast with Kobe on Tuesday, which I'm super pumped for. Kobe was in St. Andrews. Less than a month ago, um, when we recorded our U.S. Open pod, he just walked off the 18th grade at St. Andrews. Um, and I know a lot of those memories are still fresh in his head. So that's going to be a really good one. Um, probably out Tuesday afternoon. That's one that we could record earlier. To me, I think that podcast works the best when we have some semblance of ownership. I don't really see a, val- a ton of value in it if, uh, me recording that with him on Monday. Um, it, so I guess the half-life on it will be a little bit shorter, but I would highly encourage you to 
search that one out if you have the time for it on Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday. Um, we're genuinely pretty proud of that one for these uh, for these major weeks. And then I'll be on uh, I'll be on Tap in Birdie on Tuesday. Last time I was on Tap in Birdie, which was the Masters. I was doing this show and I forgot to mention that I was going on tap and birdie, not making that mistake again. I will be on tap and birdie and that's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be a good podcast. That's Tuesday night. Um, and then, you know, my Rick articles scramble, um, and then a bunch of other guest stuff that I'm, I'm ironing out the details of now, but I will be, uh, I'll be pretty easily accessible um, to you this week. And if you've got any questions, um, hit me up in that Rick Run Good Slack. Uh, and best of luck with uh, with your bets this week. Hopefully Xander takes it down tomorrow. And uh, have a great rest of your weekend. We'll talk soon. Cheers.